morning and welcome to Rising. We're going to dive right into some breaking news. Footage from the Uvalde school shooting was leaked yesterday. The surveillance video shows heavily armed officers in the hallway of the building waiting outside the classroom where the attack was taking place. They're actually down the hall. The footage was obtained by the Austin Statesman and reporter Tony Plahetsky. The video shows gunman Salvador Ramos' way into the building and where classroom, uh, where the, in the classroom where 19 students and two teachers were killed. The video then shows police entering the school three minutes after Ramos fired off on his first two classrooms. But you can see here that no one rushed the shooter himself. We want to play you the rest of this footage that shows police and Border Patrol alike waiting in the hallways. Officers... Officers finally rushed into the classroom and killed the gunman an hour and 14 minutes after police first arrived on the scene, the statesman writes. Following the release, the Uvalde mayor started berating the statesman reporters, calling them chicken and unprofessional. Let's watch that. This was wrong to do it this way. The video needed to be released, but the family should have got to see it first. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. The mayor said chicken. It was chicken yeah. to release that video the way you did it. That, that part of that video was not supposed to be in what they're doing on Sunday. That was not supposed to be there. They did that for ratings and they did that for money. And that's the only reason they put that out there. We're, we're going to handle that. He said that they did a good job. You still think they did a good job? Adam, I'm not going to get into an argument with you on that deal. I haven't seen the video yet, but I can tell you that one of the officers you've called, they've got, they got grades in that deal. In that video, he goes back down that hall three times trying to get in that room. Three different times. Three. I, I know what everybody thinks, and we need to let the investigation come through. I mean, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I want to, you know, props to the journalist who was offering some pushback there. And it's really incredible that after watching a video like that, you would turn around and have a critique of the process of how the video came out and not your own officers who were. Right, as if the thing people are going to be outraged about is that, oh, no, the video has been released and it wasn't cleared with the families first. The families are outraged by what the police did. Right. Everyone is outraged by the police did. Right. <laughs> We, and we are trying to get to the bottom of it and understand it better. So the only reason they, th that the city governance there was, was getting upset was that it, it, makes, it makes the police look even worse, as everything right. that comes out does. And, um, I mean, let's, let's talk for a second about what we really just saw. We saw, what, a dozen 
or so, officers, fully armed, with all of the gear that one could imagine, standing in. They eventually have the. They have that the armor, that uh, that that shield type thing. Right, and the imagery of them in what is such a familiar sight an elementary school hallway, brightly colored with the kind of art that you expect from the kids along the walls. And to see them all there, armed to the teeth, and to hear four more gunshots go off in the room where they know that there's a gunman with children, and to see them all continue to stand there and subsequently use hand sanitizer. I mean, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how there's any coming back from that as a police department. And I really am curious about how people's public perception of the police are going to continue to morph as this becomes a dominant image of what police ineptitude looks like. This is an image that's repeated all across the country in one way or another, as police are called upon to protect communities, but ultimately do very little at any risk to themselves, but at great cost to our city governments. Right. And again, the training is very clear. Like, yes, entering that classroom was going to come with a with a significant risk of getting shot for the police officers. But the training is for the police officers to do just that. The first guy who goes in, maybe he gets shot, maybe the next guy, and then maybe the third guy is able to fire on right, the shooter. What is the That's thinking? what they're supposed to do. Right. There's There were 20 of them. And then, Go what, in. And what's the alternative? Right. They're literally, you're hearing the consequence of you not going in every time a gunshot goes off inside of that room where you know there are children who do not have right. guns, who do not have body armor, who do not have helmets, who do not have 18 men backing them up behind right. behind them, who do not have tactical gear, who do not have walkie-talkies, who do not have any bla- flash blasts or anything like that, the kind of gear that you would expect. Someone, even, when a, even when they are finally going in, there's one officer, if you look at the end of the footage, who's who's still being like, oh, hold on, hold on, wait, to like the, the back of it. No, no one's supposed to wait. Everyone is supposed to go in. That's what the tra- That's not my opinion of what they should have mm. done. That is what the training dictates. Mm. Um, the, the, the hand sanitizer is just such a kind of perfect um, little metaphor for the amount of caution being shown by the police officer. More concerned about like not spreading COVID or something in this situation where Children are being gunned, are bleeding out, are calling for help. Again, let's just recall, there are people in that room, many of them dead, some of them still alive, call, quiet, you know, quietly trying to call the police to do something. Um, I saw some people concentrated on, were able to, like, I- I expand the photo of right. one of the police officers who has a, on his cell phone, mm-hmm. he, his background is like the, the Punisher, Punisher logo. The Punisher is this, uh, com- Mar- I think, Marvel comic mm-hmm. books. Um, character who's like uh, who's very popular among police for some reason, which actually doesn't really make sense because he's like a right wing kind of militia type guy. Oh, that I doesn't think, make right? sense. That well, I mean, he's supposed to be... the police officers don't like a right wing militia type. I mean, this is the argument the left sure, has been fine. making for a really long time that there's Fair this point. unholy alliance point, between right. some of the right wing fascist elements in our right. government and, and right wing fascists outside right. of our government. That it's one thing. You're right. He, he's a he's a take things. Take matters into my own uh, my own hands. Character, you know, not relying on the structures of society to get the job done. Only I can get the job done. Uh, so for yeah, a for police to fetishize that is a little odd. But then 
if that's your thing, then be that guy. Be the hero. Go do what the structure is not letting you do. And he's sitting back with all the rest. Because it's all about vibes. I mean, this it's is the vibes. thing. It's all about vibes. There's so much performative machismo. Yeah. And when I think sometimes left, the left and liberals criticize that, it comes off as criticizing the idea of being a hero. But what it really right. is is this idea that it's all this faux performativity, performativity that does nothing except for gin up police budgets, cause men, right. largely, who feel maybe perhaps powerless in society to join the police force, to do domestic violence. There's this, I'm sorry, significant correlation between police officers and domestic violence to take out their rage, to, to be given the authority to take out their rage and their discontent with society, which should be processed through much healthier avenues in these destructive ways and funded by the state, putting guns in the hands of people who would feel so, you know, kind of impotent and powerless that they need to have punish, punisher, emoji, uh, punisher uh, backgrounds on their phones while they're standing in a hallway with a gun, not protecting kids. I know. This is Sedicinous. their let's roll moment and they didn't do any, they didn't do anything for 77 minutes. And I, I get it. Look, it is a, it, these are, <laughs> unbelievably stressful and, and emotionally traumatizing and difficult situations. It's very easy to say, here's what I would have done, or I, I would be so brave, or et cetera. Right, I get that. That's not necessarily a healthy impulse because you don't know how you would react sure. in a situation like this. For regular people, but they're the police. They're the they police. are trained to do this. And that is their yeah. job to take on these risks that would be unreasonable or, or unreliable to ask an ordinary person to take but on. But also don't forget that there were a lot of ordinary people outside who right, were begging to go in, to go in. demanding to go in. And the police had no issue Right, there's a mother out them. there, and uh, a, a migrant worker mother, who clawed her way away from the police to get into the school to rescue her children. It's just, uh, I, I mean, I, what do you say about this story? It continues to deliver just unrelenting horror and I, you have to dissolve this entire police department. Everyone in government in yeah. the city should be fired, should be resigned, should be run out of town. Like, where are the people? Pitchforks. Assemble your pitchforks, people. Yeah, like, I'm, this is, yeah. sorry, there's no formal remedy for this level yeah. of, of effed up mismanagement. You, and, like, and everyone can, has to yeah. go. And if I can make a little bit of a, a broader claim here. I, I just, I think it's useful to always pay attention, not to the symbolism of a thing. Is it a cop? Is it not a cop? Is it, you know, because we get caught up, I think, politically in our factions and we know who our good guys are and who our bad guys are. But I think we should continually ask ourselves, what, who do moneyed resources protect? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, if you're seeing videos of police officers willing to tackle parents or willing to, you know, in a recent video that was circulating yesterday, uh, do a hit and run and knock some kids over who are riding down the street on a bicycle or, you know, per perpetuate Bloomberg stop and frisk programs and yeah. all of these other kinds of things. If you see all these civil liberties violations, all these Fourth Amendment violations, if you see all of that, that they have a lot of confidence when they're dealing with powerless people and absolutely no confidence when they're dealing with the people who have guns in their hands, who are actually trying to threaten our liberty. When you see that the state calls for more funding to protect some people but not others, and immediately have a bipartisan bill to, that passes to protect Supreme Court justices, and very little done to protect people in communities across the country that are suffering from gun violence, you know, you have to start asking yourself whether or not your kind of symbolic ideological commitment to the idea of the police mm -hmm. is actually manifesting in you and your community being protected or whether or not it's serving some broader 
goal, authoritarian goal, I would argue, that is actually hurting you in your community? Well, I think that's true for some people. I think a lot of others are seeing the rising crime in some places in America, not everywhere, not every city, and are more police or more aggressive police or something seems like, can feel like the right solution to that problem or, or maybe the only the only solution, the only option on the table. How's that been and, going? Well, no, I, well, I, what I was going to say yeah. is, you know, despite my similar, I also have that concern about, uh, about crime getting out of control in various places. Yes, what prevents me from going to the, okay, well, this is, we just need more police. We've got to invest in more police, is seeing things like Uvalde or, or on a smaller scale, the, the abuses that people suffer, just the police not doing a good job, which is actually not surprising as akin to so many other government agencies, in my view, and stops me from, from going in the de- direction of saying, yeah, this is really the resource we have to invest in. That's going to solve the problem. There are problems. It would be yeah. great if they could be solved, but, uh, but you know, here's what, here's what happens when you, when you put your faith in this kind of thing. Yeah, well, I'll be talking a little bit about what I think are some solutions potentially uh, to solving some of these Mm. issues rooted in our communities and my radar later in the show, Robbie. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) We'll have more rising right after this. We have some breaking news to report. Inflation has hit a 40-year high in June at 9.1% up from 8.6% last month. While Biden said this is unacceptably high and data is out of date, he added that he will give the Fed the room it needs to fight inflation. Reports say the Federal Reserve will likely deliver an even bigger interest rate hike later this month, which could squeeze consumers even tighter. Groceries saw the biggest hike in prices at 12%. Chicken is up 19% in the past year, the biggest increase ever, while gas is up 60%. Electricity has also gone up 14%, and rent, of course, is up nearly 6%. Not good. Not good. People need chicken to live. Well, look, I was also just, you know, I was scrolling through the Internet looking at this trending topic, and I saw one commentator who said, we need to also change our language around this, this passive voice that is often used for police shootings, you know, you know, civilian was shot, right. you know, without was talking about who. Dead. You know, this this is also true that landlords are raising rent. It's mm-hmm. not that rents go up randomly. You know, there is some aspect of this. It's not entirely attributed to this, but some aspect of this, this is price gouging. I saw that Costco put out a tweet. Someone asked, are you going to raise the price of hot dogs? And they responded with one word, no. no. And people, yeah, people were celebrating, you know, Costco is stronger than inflation. And it's because a lot of these industries are still experiencing huge profit, if not record profit, and are still choosing instead to raise prices and further gouge profit and use the the fact of inflation as an excuse to charge more for goods. I don't know if landlords are experiencing historic earnings or something like that. They're, They're probably raising your rent because the cost of everything for them goes up. So they rate, I mean, this is a whole, that's all of the whole but, system but that, that is the thing. The costs do go up, but right. co- the cost of living for us are not going up proportionally to the costs that are actually being incurred by these people. So for example, I believe the price of rent in New York has gone at something like, I don't want to 
misrepresent, but it's huge. It's like 20%. It's not the kinds of costs that would be built in with gas prices and you know oil or construction prices and those kinds of things. And anybody who lives in New York knows that your landlords aren't exactly spending a lot on construction and upkeep of these apartments that basically look like the tenements sounds in the like 1930s. Sounds like a miserable, <laughs> I, I, I repeat again, sounds like a miserable place to live. I don't know why anyone would want to live there. Go elsewhere. Well, it's a look, big country. Well, it's, it's a because, big country because, with affordable places to live if you look outside New York. But that is also not true. Statistic after statistic no, shows true. you that if you earn, work a minimum wage salary anywhere in the United States, in Mississippi, in West Virginia, a 40-hour week minimum wage salary earning full-time means you cannot afford a two-bedroom apartment anywhere. Yes, you right. have you to need a roommate up. You need or a roommate. Uh, you need yes. to, you know, to start getting a Murphy bed. And and this this is not because of something that has happened in the last year. This is because even though prices have gone up even before this inflation crisis, wages have not gone up. A minimum wage, we haven't had a minimum wage raise. I, I say this until I'm red in the face. Since 2009, it's the longest period in American history without a wage. And what's the response of our government? To say that the problem somehow is that wages are too high and supply is too high without looking to things like the war in Ukraine, what's, what, what that yes. done is to, has done to energy prices, and how those energy prices have caused prices of other kinds of goods and services to raise And to the, the extent there's any root cause here, I mean, there's a, I'm throwing my pen, I'm furious. <laughs> there's a number of causes, yeah. uh, but that is the big one. And that is a policy failure. Yeah. The U.S. government is pursuing this we talked about it this yesterday i think as long as it takes mm -hmm. is what joe biden said is his policy for continuing this the, again it's not solely on the us obviously to snap our fingers and say the, the the war's over russia is invading the country and is going to take some of the land of the country but it's we're never going to we're never going to defeat russia i saw a tweet from bill crystal a famous neoconservative commentator she says straightforward that all these things would happen including the defeat of Ru russia ukraine will defeat russia and then everything will be fine that's not going to happen yeah. and our commitment to that is screwing up our economy our entire country the people don't want it they're fed up with it are, are the sanctions, the, what we did to deter Russia didn't work. They reaped actually record uh, uh, profits from doing exports. Uh, the ruble's strong. It's not working. <laughs> yeah. It's just hurting us. And that is, and I, Biden, but Biden is committed to this. He's yeah. reiterated yeah. his commitment to this policy that is probably one of the bigger factors for what we're dealing with right now. Obviously, yeah. things were a little, supply chains were a little janky well, before I, this. And the but, supply chains are part of that. I don't, I don't yeah. want to brush that aside. It, people are making the point also that high inflation is global. So to the extent that anyone wants to attribute it to things specifically Joe Biden can do, well, I think Joe Biden should do a lot more because people in other countries aren't necessarily suffering the effects of inflation in the same way because despite inflation, they still have, I don't know, health care, affordable education, things we don't have in this country that make it easier to weather the storm. However, we have to look at these global inflation numbers with, you know, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11% all across the world and understand that you do have to talk about COVID and some of these supply chain mm -hmm. uh, issues that have come up and particularly in the United States, the choice to offshore so much of our manufacturing so that we're hit harder by these kinds of things. And of course, we can't forget, we can't forget the price gouging aspect of it. I saw uh, Bernie Sanders was tweeting about Amazon on Prime Day complaining, uh, Jeff Bezos complaining about uh, the uh, he blamed inflation on a 17% price hike in prime membership after its profit soared 450%. So they they raised the the cost of a prime membership by 17% passed that on to the consumer at the same time that Amazon the company 
soared in profits by 450% to a record $38 billion, all while avoiding $5 billion in taxes and spending $4 million on union busting and denying workers paid sick leave. What I mean, a there's, there's no there, there's no greater gulf in our opinions than when we talk about Amazon <laughs> stuff. I don't care. Good for them. It's the greatest company that's ever lived. It's mastered the art of efficiently well, meeting human need, and uh, I they're they're better organized and more efficiently run than any other organization. Certainly if, than our government. Run at whose expense? Maybe you can afford Robbie to pay seventeen percent more. If you can't your, afford, if you can't afford Amazon, you don't have to pay it. It's this well, here's voluntary. The thing. We, no, we live in a country where we have decided that we have uh, Amazon companies like Amazon taking over much of our infrastructure, much of our, they have a grocery business, they uh, control the publishing business, you can't publish a book, you can't succeed in commerce and have a business without having a good relationship with, with Amazon. We cannot sit Doesn't here and pretend. But wait a minute, Robbie. We talk about Twitter, which is a private company and they can do what they want. We talk about Facebook. It's a private company and we can do what we want. No, we understand that at a certain point these companies have gotten so large that they constructively are public forums and we need to have rules and regulations going on there and, and keep a mo our eye out for the fact that they can have the same kind of despotic control over our lives that the government can have, even if they are not technically the government. And I don't know how you can look at monopolistic companies like Amazon and not see that same threat there. A lot of vibes there, to, to borrow a Brianna phrase. It's not what they have mostly done is not wielded despotic power, but uh, vastly expanded the capacity to engage in all the things you just discussed. Wait they minute, have expanded the, my ability to shop and to buy things, to purchase books. They have expanded all of these domains. They have not constricted them. That's, that's, that's said like a true, that's said like an affluent consumer and not like a person well, who has a business or who is participating in the market. No, I'm talking about consumers. Wait, we're all consumers. We're not all business owners, but we're all consumers. You don't think it's it's despotic to have this relationship between these Amazon home devices? I don't think we need it. We can't have, our, our entire policy can't be to keep Wait the corner store in business. It's like... That's Luddite no, behavior. No, we're not talking Sorry, about corner store. Story's we're done. talking about the anti-monopolistic principles that this country was founded on and that their founding fathers very much understood were a problem to actually having competitive enterprises that it, that nurture the benefit of the consumer. Having monopolies is never good for a consumer, especially when they're so big and so large that they are partnering with police departments to get surveillance data from your Amazon home device on your front door. They have drones flying People fly keep saying it's not good, out. but it seems, in fact, good. Well, the, what Amazon delivers us seems to be good. Well, and most Robbie, people think it's good, and most people use it. You're, you're, so, the, you're a person who doesn't necessarily see the threat of even having the chips installed into your hands to scan in and out of Amazon well, stores. Where there is, you're right. How about, how, here's the trade-off I'll make for you. Us. Here's what I'll do for you. We should no more, no subsidies, no favorable tax whatevers. The the when the red carpet was rolled out for Amazon, so they could headquarter in D.C. or across the river, and they've renamed the whole place. Yes, ridiculous. None of that. I don't want any favoritism. I don't want any special favors. That is the domain of Amazon in which I am most concerned. Their ability to 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 buy legislators or say, oh, yeah, we might do something here if you kind of change the package to be more favorable to us. That's wrong. There's none of that. I'm against all of that, et cetera. Um, and I, look, I, you know, we were yelling at each other a minute ago, but it, I, I, look, I take seriously the concerns to, uh, to publishing, to free speech. I have been very critical of Amazon's policies on a lot of these fronts. I think they deserve criticism for them. I it's, it's not, I, I'm not being myop, myopic saying there's no benefit or there's no downside to any of this stuff, 
but there is also considerable benefit. And no the, one's arguing the benefit. The question is, who does the benefit accrue to? If Amazon increases its profits by 450% during a pandemic when the rest of the world is suffering, including their workers, their workers are being forced to take, uh, you know, be subsidized by the government, by the taxpayer, because they're not being paid a fair wage. What, what we design our systems. We can right. do, we can choose, and we have chosen chosen differently at different points in American history to hold our corporate overlords to a higher standard, and not say that unlimited profit at the expense of our democracy. Because again, they use that money to buy elections the way that Michael Bloomberg tried to do. They use that money to influence Congress and the laws that are passed. There is that Princeton study that shows that we do not live in a democracy anymore because the likelihood that something the majority of citizens want passing is absolutely nil unless it happens to align with the interests of corporate elites. That's the problem. It's not that I'm mad that he's going to buy too many Teslas or an elevator car like Mitt, uh, an elevator for his cars like Mitt Romney. The concern with people getting that much wealth is, one, that it's extracted from the labor of working Americans and seeing a smaller and smaller piece of the pie, and also that they use that obscene wealth to literally buy our democracy. Amazon didn't, but Amazon didn't shut down the country, didn't shut down all the local business, all of the the the. the the reality of the pandemic, which did benefit Amazon, a lot of these other tech companies, but they didn't do that. The government did that. No, but that's not the question. The question is whether or not they should have been, one, bailed out by the government, gotten no, all these PPP loans. they should not have been. And additionally, whether or not, as we're talking about inflation, as we're talking yeah. about inflation and why prices are so high, whether or not we're going to stop caping for and protecting the corporatists who are stealing money out of the pockets of American laborers and instead hold them responsible for price gouging at a moment of public by vulnerability. by stealing, you mean Extorting the government for special treatment and benefits and bailouts and monies, I agree. Stealing. No. If by stealing, you mean <laughs> providing people things they no, want in, I a, mean, in exchange they're voluntarily I mean not participating paying their workers, in, then no. Not profiting by not paying their workers a fair wage. And Americans are consumers, but they're also stealing. workers. You're workers as well. All right. Well, we are going to get some guests to talk about inflation for tomorrow or next week. And uh, instead of us just, uh, just uh, volleying back and forth, uh, but we'll have more on this subject in a later date, and we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Bree, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, you might know this about me. I'm something close to a free speech absolutist. I think that the ACLU defending the rights of white supremacists to march in Skokie was a principled stance that I respect despite obviously being a black woman and one of the literal targets of white supremacy. I am skeptical of Twitter's authority to ban people for dead naming trans folks, even though I think it's clear that Jordan Peterson intentionally refuses to use actor Elliot Page's preferred name as a bigoted act of performative, kind of snowflakey, childish rebellion against basic civility and human decency. I am a leftist who is frustrated by the misplaced faith liberals put in tech companies and courts to protect the left's culture war victories. Twitter and Facebook aren't going to herald gender equality, and the courts have overwhelmingly favored big moneyed interests and elites over workers and marginalized groups in decision after decision. The technocrats aren't going to save us. It seems obvious to me that all we have, in fact, is each other, the people. And to that end, we have to vigorously safeguard our right to speech, our ability to communicate with each other, to understand each other, and to fight together for the rights we as community members believe we deserve. Because after all, it is our country. We get to decide what our communities look like, what rights should be protected, who we love, 
what medical decisions we undertake, how big our family should be, and how we worship, if at all. Make no mistake, these rights are under significant threat. But here's the thing, the fact that corporations like Facebook and Twitter seem eager to police the culture wars, even at the expense of First Amendment freedoms, has led some to believe that conservatives are the prime defenders of speech rights. But the reality is that corporate alignment against the people over constitutional rights is not a left or right issue, it's a top-down issue that serves to protect elite power while pitting working people against each other. Corporations don't care about pride parades or Black Lives Matter. They care about Citizens United and myriad other cases that strip substantive economic and democratic rights from the people, even as we all sit here and rage about the culture wars. Now, I have sat here with my co-hosts and agreed again and again with them that liberals were wrong to try to police misinformation with the musical loving czar or erase the Hunter Biden tapes from social media. But we don't always focus enough on the fact that right culture warriors also constitute a significant threat to fundamental rights, like speech. Last week, while I was away on vacation, a group of protesters tried to confront Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh while he was having dinner at Morton's Steakhouse. They did not enter the restaurant. Kavanaugh did not see or even hear the protesters. And yet the overwhelming response from the conservative media is that these people's actions, non-violently using their First Amendment rights to articulate their political beliefs, were tantamount to a high-class lynching. Listen to reporter Peter Ducey's line of questioning to White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre last week. Is many, that many it's okay times. if protesters know that a justice is out to eat at a restaurant, well, that, pro that they can go and protest as long as they are what you consider peaceful? That's okay. Well, we have said that we want to see peaceful uh, protests. That's what we have said. We want to see the, pe the protests be peaceful. But when it comes to intimidation, that is something that we have condemned. So where's the line? If these protesters can go to a justice's house and they can go to a restaurant, where is it that you don't think it's appropriate for a group of protesters when to go? I, I just laid out, you asked me about intimidation. We condemn intimidation. We condemn any violence. And we've been very clear. That is, it is a clear, uh, it is a, a clear definition of what violence is or what intimidation is. Peaceful protest, uh, people should be allowed to be, to be able to do that. In a restaurant? If it's outside of a restaurant, if it's peaceful, for sure. Really? Peaceful protest. You were, your first question so to me just, was so, intimidation. So Kareem said that, of course people have a right to privacy apparently not realizing the irony of the fact that the Supreme Court just held that women did not, in fact, have that right, and that that's why the protesters were outside of Morton's to begin with? Ask yourself, what should people do when they lose a fundamental right? Write strongly worded letters to the White House? If it were your Second Amendment or First Amendment rights at stake, would you feel differently about the Morton protest? Would a peaceful gathering outside of a steakhouse feel proportionate to you? Now, I understand, of course, that sometimes when people protest, when they're angry, there's often the simmering possibility that things could escalate. But that possibility does not excuse infringing on people's First Amendment right to congregate, to speak to each other, to rally to a cause. And I'm, I'm sorry, it just strikes me as unbelievably snowflakeish 
to carp and whine about a Supreme Court justice not being able to get to his dessert course at a restaurant where they're charging $19 for a hot fudge sundae. What kind of country are we when we've so tightly policed our ability to express discontent with our system? Many conservatives are frustrated that the Democrats continue to discuss the events of 1-6. Well, whatever you feel about the ideological underpinnings of that event, it feels inconsistent to simultaneously champion the uprising in Sri Lanka last week in which the president was run out of the country after thousands of citizens showed up at his residence. After 1-6, Democrats stressed the importance of a peaceful transfer of power again and again. As Americans, we fetishize the lack of revolutionary energy in this country as an American ideal. Even as we celebrate the Boston Tea Party and all of the property destruction that that entailed. Thomas Jefferson thought the Constitution should be rewritten every 19 years. But we see peaceful revolutions across the world and think that couldn't be us without wondering even for a moment whether it should be. Now, I substantively disagree with the goals of the 1-6 protesters, but it seems obvious to me that given the brokenness of our legal system, the corporate capture that has ruined our legislative system, the fact that experts have for years now warned that we do not live in a democracy, and that without, that without protests, nothing the people want stands a chance of actually coming to pass. Unless, of course, by some miracle, it also happens to be a desire shared by the corporate elites. That means that at this point, if a change is going to come, it's probably going to look a lot more spicy than a few signs and chants outside of a Morton's. And isn't that what we want? Change. Something different. Think about it. The bipartisan response to Roe being overturned was, we absolutely must not have any property damage. You must only protest in des designated protest zones, like it's 1984. Also, vote more. They want people to do what's led us exactly to this point, and which is demonstrably ineffective. They want us to believe that voting harder will change things. Protest, sure, they say, but be polite about it. First, they took away our right to privacy. What's next? Our right to protest peacefully? The right to bear arms. Does anyone doubt that the open carry rights that the Supreme Court just upheld in the state of New York would suddenly come with myriad caveats if the location of those arms were outside of Kavanaugh's residence? Are we happy with a contingent constitutional system where the consistent contingency seems to be protection for those with money and power? Meanwhile, instead of talking about what it means for your First and Second Amendment rights to be slashed if you're exercising them in defense of working class freedoms, the political right is obsessed with culture war nonsense. Take a listen. It inspires everybody today. All men are created equal and all this kind of stuff. A great architect, scholar, you know, Thomas Jefferson. And instead, I got you know exactly the opposite. You're just uh, yeah, debunking his his history, his reputation, uh, putting him down, uh, demoralizing everybody on my tour. It was it was just sad, sadly predictable too these days. I just thought that maybe Monticello would be protected from this uh, disease of wokeism. 
Oh, are his fifis hurt? My goodness gracious, that's a Fox News host, uh, a Fox News conservative rather, who was mad at Thomas Jefferson's house, a, a literal slave plantation. The fact that tour guides discuss it as such, a slave plantation. The purpose of said house, the financial mechanism by which Thomas Jefferson supported himself was slave-based agriculture. But this guy is mad that he went on a tour of Monticello and that was even mentioned? It demoralized him? Was this news to him? Look, this is what liberals are talking about when they say the right is hypocritical about free speech. When they say the right is not upset about CRT per se, but the teaching of basic historical facts like this, I don't know what kind of bizarro historical erasure you'd have to engage in to pretend that America's most famous slave owner's house, a place, I'm sorry, I didn't make this up, where he kept humans as chattel, raped a 16-year-old slave repeatedly, his wife's enslaved half-black sister, by the way, history's amazing, is anything other than what I've just described. It's just completely compatible to understand Jefferson as a scholar, as a brilliant visionary, if you want, at the same time that you acknowledge his flaws. But the anti-speech zealots on the right want to constrain our understanding of history to weed out the inconvenient facts. Again, it's like something out of Orwell. I gotta say, a week after coming back from vacation, coming to these media spaces sometimes makes me feel like I'm losing my mind a little. It feels like no one's really in the right. And it's exhausting detailing all the reasons why no single party and very few media spaces truly seem to operate with the requisite amount of nuance and honesty and willingness to admit they're wrong. It's incredibly isolating. And it feels sometimes like it's by design. 1970s poet and musical phenom Gil Scott Heron famously said the revolution will not be televised. And he was right, if only because any truly revolutionary content on here will be censored, banned, canceled, all while we debate, for some reason, Jordan Peterson's substantive merit, while we're being told to define our politics on the basis of what we think about transition surgery, or if academic terminology like chest feeding that even most trans folks don't use uh, are a problem. You know, other countries, while we're doing all that, are in the streets, demanding more of their leadership, or frankly, chasing them out of the country if they aren't up to the challenge. Now, this is not a call for an insurrection. But it is a call for us to interrogate our political priorities and to question why the parties seem to be aligned on passing bills to fund security for elite justices, to fund wars, to push austerity politics that raise unemployment and ship jobs overseas, to defund social security and the like, all while they insist that we have to stay docile. So docile, in fact, that we can't even avail ourselves of our First Amendment privilege to ruin Brett Kavanaugh's dessert course. So, Robbie, I, I just couldn't help mm. but notice this overwhelming thrust from both sides of the aisle. Don't do anything. Don't raise your voice. Don't protest in even the mildest manner possible. At the same time, I see Tucker Carlson kind of saying, hey, look, these people in Sri Lanka doing their thing, getting people out, rabble-rousing, advocating for their interests. And the fact that we seem to be able to look abroad and say, oh, it's a good thing when people stand up for themselves. 
but here in the United States of America think it's a bridge too far for Justice Kavanaugh to be protested legally and peacefully, even though he did not even see or come in contact with or even hear the protesters. To me, there's a relationship between that attitude we have in the United States and the fact that we don't have anything here for the people. Okay, so I, th I think we don't have any disagreement on what the legal status should be. Yeah, it's absolutely should be protected to protest people, even in very close proximity to their homes, et cetera. Um, I guess I would say, do you think it is effective? Mm. And do you think it does good for the cause to, I don't know, call in a bunch of fake reservations to Morton's or like that sort of thing? Is that is that making the cause for which people are protesting Kavanaugh seem more sympathetic? I don't know, but I do know that it's not effective to tell people to have White House reporters and conservative commentators and elected officials on the right telling people that they have somehow done something wrong, opining on their substantive, the, 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 the way they've chosen to protest when there's already such an assault on free speech first and foremost. It's not my job, your job, or certainly Peter Ducey's job to do comms for abortion activists, to, to do comms work for them. That's not their job. So why are they weighing in? They're not weighing in because they have a, a, you know, a substantive concern. Oh, I really hope you get your message on abortion rights across. If you just did it a little bit differently, I'm, I'm sure you'd be more successful. Now, Peter Ducey doesn't care about that. What, he, what they're doing is constraining what they feel like people have, uh, what opportunities people have to avail themselves of to make themselves heard. And I'm sorry, substantively you can disagree about the underlying cause of Black Lives Matter as well, but that's what that project was about. Both parties were united in saying, don't rabble rouse, don't, don't disrupt capital, don't cause any inconvenience in the street, don't block traffic, don't make it difficult for us to continue to make money. That is, the, the, that is the bipartisan consensus around all of these, whether or not you're protesting, it's a trucker's boycott. Remember how they, they acted like blowing, blowing your horn in the street and obstructing traffic was full-blown fascism? Now, again, I disagree with the underlying mm -hmm. objectives of that boycott, mo most of them. But the reality is that there is a, a really dangerous creep that I'm seeing where things that are the most innocuous forms I, I will, of so I will agree. are being vilified Morton Steakhouse, are you kidding me? I will agree that there is a tension sometimes among some commentators on the right between the, yes, we're the free speech tribe now and the condemning of wokeness when it goes into the, and I think it should like essentially be criminalized or something. It's fine to just criticize wokeness, just like it's fine to just criticize protesters or their tactics. I do it all the time, but the answer to it is not to broadly criminalize it. And if you are someone on the right who thinks that is the answer, you should consider how that will be immediately used against your own side in the same, and, and, some, and people on the left know that, on the hard left, many mm -hmm. of them do know that. I think some in maybe the squishier liberal camps don't quite understand right. how and, and power can be with exercised them too. against like, them. I, this is why I fall out of step with many members of the broad left, of many liberals, when it comes to things like this Twitter stuff. I can substantively say I strongly disagree with Jordan Peterson, and I strongly disagree mm -hmm. with people who made, uh, you know, Elliot Page's dead name trend on Twitter, at the same time that I have concerns about relying institutionally on Twitter or Facebook or even the Supreme Court to be policing the substantive values that I think as a community we should share. And so often I think that when we pivot to, well, Twitter's going to take care of it, the Supreme Court's going to take care of it, even the legislature's going to take care of it, 
What we fail to do is engage in the conversations with each other and have the substantive conversation about, well, what kind of people do we want to be? Let's not talk about the Twitter ban. Do we want to be people who have basic respect for mm -hmm. people's preferences and name preferences and decency or not? And when the conversation is at that level, if people want to expose themselves, as I think Jordan Peterson has done, and say, I don't care, I don't respect this actor, I don't, I don't want to use their preferred pronouns, well, then we can all judge that for what it is and move on with our lives. But when it gets caught up in these kind of structural battles about, well, but is Twitter good? Oh, but is the government good? But we all end up passing, talking past each other. We don't have Mostly a good no. Oh, and definitely no. <laughs> <laughs> of what the community wants. We talk yeah. about our country like we don't have a choice. We talk about our government like it wasn't designed by us for us. I mean, it wasn't actually, but we were supposed to at least have the right to make it work for us now. And now we live in a world where there have been these in incredible overreaches in terms of our ability to actually use the levers of democracy as they were designed to work for the people. Enormous amount of corporate and political capture. And at the same time, they want to take away those rights which were enshrined that were supposed to be able to give us a voice despite those kinds of overreaches. And when we get to the place where we're saying you can't even say Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, on a tour of his slave plantation, and when you can't say that, hey, you took away my privacy right and I'm upset about it to a Supreme Court justice because that infringes on his privacy right, and you have people unironically saying, doesn't Justice Kavanaugh deserve I, a right I, to I privacy? I agree that that was a little snowflakey, the Jefferson thing. So, But not the Kavanaugh thing. You think he should have been able to have his Sunday? I don't think it makes any difference to the cause if we harass people inside But diapers. that's not the I question, don't. Robbie. The question I, and is I say you can right to do it. Well, I no, that's not a question because they do have the right to do that. Well, Peter Ducey thinks not, otherwise. And a lot of well, conservatives in the wake of He's not of sitting this, in the chair. In the wake, in the wake. In, in, I know, and frankly, we all look the same to you. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Just kidding. But like, honestly, like even, even Joe Biden, uh, there is my, my concern, and, and start paying attention to this. Look at who is making, saying those kinds of statements. Joe Biden says the same exact thing that Peter Ducey is saying every single time one of these events pops off. Joe Biden sat there and said to the Black Lives sure, Matter protesters, right, yeah. the same thing the conservatives are saying to the Black Lives Matter protesters. Because yeah. at the end of the day, there's a long history of civil dis disobedience in this country and around the world and what it can achieve. And that's what they're really afraid of. Well, thank you for that, Brianna. We'll have to leave it there and we'll have more rising right after this. Congressional Democrats' first hearings on the overturning of Roe v. Wade provoked this viral exchange between Senator Josh Howley and Berkeley law professor Kiara Bridges. Let's watch. Used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, it's, we can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have 
attempted suicide. So I think it's important because of my us, line of questioning. Because so we can't talk about it. Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist. I'm is denying dangerous. that trans people exist by asking are you? you if you're talking are you? about women are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that the, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so you are denying that trans people like this thing. And that leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you? Absolutely. Or are they also treated like this? Where no, you, no, no. They're, they're told that to they're at, opening up people to oh, violence. We have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot. Wow. I, I would learn a lot. I've learned a you, lot just I know. in this exchange. Absolutely. Extraordinary. So this exchange went extremely viral on social media yesterday. And uh, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, it's what some, I forget who came up with this. I think it was Scott Alexander who's on Substack, uh, a, a scissor episode where if you're on one team, so both sides saw this as a victory. So I think people who are conservative, who are sympathetic to the argument Josh Hawley was making, thought he did a fantastic job and he really put that woman in her place. And I think people who think, uh, who are liberal or who are uh, on the pro-transgender side think she she got him. She was great, uh, which maybe that's the best case scenario if everybody's happy and we could just all walk away. But uh, what well, did no, you think I about this I certainly don't think so. Well, I don't know what a pro-transgender side is. I would hope that everyone, including Josh Hawley, given that he's in a responsibility of overseeing the lives of people you know, in his jurisdiction that are trans, that he is pro them having all of the rights and interests that, of everybody else that lives there. But look, I think that people like this professor handling lines of inquiry like this are exactly why the liberals are in trouble. Mm -hmm. I, I think she handled it very poorly. She, she started out okay. He asked her a question about language, which frankly is not difficult to understand, in which I think him asking it reveals something about him. So saying, what was it, um, uh, people who have the capacity for birth. Many, many, many people who are cis women do not have the capacity for birth. Our, both of our mothers, I would gather of an age where they are no longer have the capacity for, the, mm -hmm. for birth. Most girls below the age of 13 or so do not have the capacity for birth. Many people are infertile and don't have the capacity for birth. It goes on and on and on. The idea, even if you don't, if trans people are not a part of this conversation, it's absurd. It makes you look like a Luddite who doesn't understand basic science to ask big, serious questions about what it means to characterize people who have the capacity for birth as a separate category from all cis women who, again, do not all have the capacity mm -hmm. for birth. He, she subsequently adds that it's also the case that trans men can have the capacity for birth. He picks up on this aspect of it and says, you know, so men, you know, then they have that colloquy about how can men um, give birth. Now, everything she said up to then, then, while I think that her tone was probably not most conducive to her being heard, was accurate and fine and not problematic. But when he then asked the follow-up question, which she had a good answer for, he asked one of these like kind of hypothetical nothing questions. Then she, she pivots accuses him of to, violence. You're doing a violence, all right. of this kind of that thing. That was the uh, part no where need, I thought it went no downhill. There's no need for that. that. Right. And she, she was like Because then he rightly face. pushes back. So you're saying that by me asking you questions about this and, and, and probing the language we're using, I am causing violence, which is... A ridiculous accusation. Yeah, all, all you need to do is ask, you know, do you think it's appropriate, you know, to use medically accurate language? Do, do you think mm -hmm. it's, you know, useful? I think personally it's useful to use medically accurate language to describe, you know, people who have the capacity for it. Now, then he says, that, is this a women's issue? That was the question that 
I think, triggered folks a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, is this then not a, a women's issue? There are many issues that we consider to be women's issues or black issues or Latino issues that aren't specifically germane to those groups. Criminal justice reform is broadly considered to be a black issue. It's hardly the case that police are only running around shooting, killing, and well, abusing black people. No, I, I, agree. I say know. that all the time. Actually, I've criticized the framing of criminal justice issues as exclusively a, a, a race as, as issue. Is the framing as the implicit, the explicit framing, really, of Black Lives Matter? Right. Well, like, but that's the thing. You can talk about the ways that things disproportionately affect groups, and I think it's historically it's been important to do so because oftentimes you can design policies in ways that don't necessarily get at the biggest effect, the people who are harmed the most, if you're not cognizant of the way that different policies are addressing different communities, whether it's rural communities versus urban communities, the North versus the South, black people versus white people. There's all different kinds of ways that you have to pay attention to what's going on to make sure that the policy is doing what it's supposed to do and not leaving anybody out. But howly pretending that something being disproportionately affecting, uh, having a disproportionate effect on cis women and therefore calling it a women's issue is somehow like confusing. That's where I would have stayed instead of going on this frolic and detour about violence. It's like, of course, um, Holly, you know, it, it's still, it is a women's issue because it disproportionately affects women. But of course, there are other people, there are many women who it doesn't affect. And there are people who do not identify as women who are also affected by it. That should have been the end of it. Well, Senator Hawley later joined Sean Hannity on Fox News and said this of the exchange. Here is the modern Democrat Party today, Sean. It is that you have to say that men can get pregnant, and if you don't say it, then you are a bigot and you are responsible for violence. I mean, that is the party line. Let's not forget who invited this witness. She was there as a Democrat witness. You didn't see a single Democrat disagree with that. In fact, they're all over social media applauding her and saying, oh, that's exactly right. It's not exactly right. It's exactly crazy, which is why voters are running screaming away from the Democrat party. This is craziness. Yeah, I think the it's the pivot to violence, which is a common tactic when this is brought up. You're, I'm accused of it all the time. Even though, I mean, we had this de we had a debate on the show last week about uh, Elliot Page and the dead naming and what the Twitter policy was. And, I, and by the way, I ne despite being accused of it, I never de I never dead named Elliot Page, etc. Um, I don't advocate doing that. I advocate treating people with civility and respect. I what. We were debating was what the policy should be. On Twitter, yeah. And I, I, I think yeah, a policy for people who yeah. are of public of public significance, where you can't recognize the name under which they started their lives and careers, seemed very silly to me. While you can still, the fact that it was trending, sure, that's that was uncivil. But that aside, um, it goes. I got accused of this all that, and Kim got a lot of this too. That we were like you know, we're fostering violence against. This community, and you can't show that. And I said that on the show, and it's still true. The the because the statistics are often thrown at me that there's so many, there's so much murders of trans people, the number of people, but they are not <laughs> entirely, like 100% of them, are not the result of anti-trans bigotry, yeah. which is not to say that anti-trans bigotry hasn't affected them in their lives, but this very direct causal link between. Th things like what Josh Hawley said and saying there's this massive epidemic of, 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 of shootings and stabbings against this community because of that is not true. It's, right. That connection so does not here's, exist. Here's, here's the frustration. There was, for example, a news story within the last few days where uh, a trans man asked what restroom he should use because he didn't want to upset anybody. And he was told, you have 
female genitalia go into the women's room. He said, okay. He goes into the women's room, but he presents his male. Some women start screaming and saying, you're not supposed to be, you know, some cis women start screaming and saying, you're not supposed to be in there. And a bunch of cis men come in and beat him up. And now we have one of these. He, he literally did what people say he's supposed to do, right? The whole concern is about trans people in women's bathrooms and da-da-da-da. And we don't want you know, women in the men's bathroom. We don't want all that. OK, so he asked and did what he was told. And he still ended up getting beat up by a bunch of cis men who said that he was somehow lecherous for being in the women's bathroom. OK, this was a story. It's a story that is covered somewhat on the left and in liberal spaces, not at all discussed um, by the right or even in this space. So when people are focusing on this kind of language at this hearing, it becomes frustrating that the real life world real world violence that is ongoing against the trans community isn't being foregrounded in the same way. However, it is also true that there's a very tenuous connection between any one instance of transphobic speech or language, even something as I think vile as what uh, Jordan Peterson was doing, and a specific instance of hate against trans people. That's not how things work. It's a kind of a, a loosening of public, um, um, uh, what seems to be publicly socially acceptable, and how we te we're teaching each other how to treat each other in these spaces. And I think having conversations about these kind of discourses does remove us from having a conversation about, well, how do we actually feel about trans people? Mm -hmm. Do we think trans people should be beat up? That's so I wish somebody would ask. Nobody should be beaten. Well, of, of course not. But that's not the conversation here with I'm not, sure the trans, I'm not sure the trans actors, people yelling at me actually agree with that. They think I should be beat up and no one Well, and, then maybe, and that's part of the problem, too. I, I think Which is something though, weird about this debate where people, you know, yeah. screaming at me on Twitter that I should be more civil. Even though, again, I did not use... I. No, the, I understand. Are screaming we, at me and, and, and also tell you know saying not that I not that my feelings are hurt. I don't care, but right. not being civil in the way they talk about this. If we're going to be right. civility police, well, the, the frustration is that the, the she the the woman the professor there the Berkeley professor seemed immediately on edge with Josh Haley. And I don't know what was happening before, what their conversation was like before, and if he had said anything before, but. I know being in these spaces, there are often things that are said and done which I find to be personally immoral, abhorrent unconstructive, et cetera. But you also have to consider when you're in a public space like that, how you're going to be perceived. And all of the baggage you're bringing to the conversation is not useful if it makes you seem like you're the aggressor and the other person is the reasonable one. And you're not going to be able to make a, a case for why it is that we need to be careful about how we characterize a community that's already, yes, under threat and exposed to a lot of violence if you are the one that's coming off as hostile. And that's what's frustrating here because I do think that oftentimes the liberal interlocutors that are put forward to make the case for these things are not making the best case. They're not sending their best. And it ultimately comes at the detriment to trans people. One last thing I'll say quickly. I was doing my call-in show the other night and talking about the episode here on, on, on Rising with Ole and, and all of that. And the, the trans caller made the point that, you know, in their community, they live with a bunch of other trans people. In their community, they don't even use words like that. They, they, had, they said they just heard about this thing, chest feeding. They had never even heard of that phrase before. But they feel like there's all of this antipathy being stirred up against them in their community because of language that is largely academic, largely niche, and has nothing to do with them and what their political priorities are, which are often working class political priorities because they're often kicked out of their homes, marginalized from jobs, and, and are, are kind of economically precarious. And so you know, the same thing that happens with black groups and a lot of other things. We were talking about the Latinx stuff yesterday and Jill Biden. There is, I think, a scourge of academics 
framing these conversations in a way that makes them feel good and which I substantively often agree with, but which is harmful to the groups that they are purporting to represent because it is the most out of touch and often triggering way to talk about these groups and it misrepresents what their political interests are. Well, thank you for that, Brianna. We'll have more Rising right after this. Actually, the panel will join us, so stick around. The New York Times is out with some new polling that gauges who GOP voters are leaning toward as their preferred presidential nominee. According to the poll, in a matchup between Trump, DeSantis, Ted Cruz, and other GOP hopefuls, Trump led the pack with 49% of the vote, with DeSantis trailing behind at 25%, while Cruz, Pence, and Haley each scored under 10% of the vote. And here's where things get interesting. The poll finds that DeSantis actually beats Trump among those with college degrees at 32% compared to Trump's 28%. But Trump wins with non-college educated voters, 58% to DeSantis's 21%. CEO Status Quo News, Jordan Cheriton, and Newsweek contributor Denise Long join us to discuss. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Hi. Okay, Denise, what do you make of this? Uh, when we talk about Democrats versus Republicans in a lot of these matchups, uh, you know, there's almost a, uh, you know, disdain for the fact that Democrats tend to do better with college educator voters. It seems uh, proof of the fact that they are elite and out of touch. Can the same be said of DeSantis here as we look at the split uh, between Trump and DeSantis among Republican voters? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I did not look at polling results for how DeSantis is, how DeSantis fared uh, from an educational standpoint when he won the governorship for Florida. Uh, you know, many Americans do not have a college uh, education. I believe the vast majority don't, um, and so. You know, and it's something to be said that there is an elitism that happens there, but there's also a way in which people who attend college sort of view uh, the world through a philosophical lens that perhaps that that they get from being in liberal uh, education environments. I am fascinated by the fact that um, I think Donald Trump lost the lost the presidential election from uh, 2020 because white men in particular felt a certain kind of way about he rep how he represented them um, during his presidency. So I'm really fascinated by the fact that he mo more men than women in this poll of 350 people um, supported uh, Trump so strongly. Mm. Mm. Jordan, you know, what do you make of this? Trump's strength with non-college educated voters uh, is is a significant factor, obviously, you know, in his prior uh, victories and, and probably suggests that even in this poll now that he's being probably underrated. Uh, maybe maybe by, by me, I think I've been sounding the it's going to be DeSantis uh, kind of note. But Trump has this just this base of support among a group of voters who are not well represented in in the ranks of the media of elite society of the take makers and causes him i think to be underrated and and under under uh, uh appreciated as as a still a force because he speaks for these voters according to them you might you know disagree with that his policies match what these voters want but they seem to like him yeah, I think you're ready for Ron uh, posters are going to have to wait. I, I think this uh, poll and uh, other polls, I mean, it's kind of remarkable. Uh, 
Trump doesn't have Twitter anymore. Uh, frankly, the January 6th hearings have been pretty brutal for him. I think even it's breaking through with some Republicans. And he still kind of has a stranglehold uh, on the non-college educated, which is now the base of the Republican Party, particularly in primaries. Uh, even if you look at the college educated, sure, DeSantis, you know, has kind of a, a four, I think it was four points within the margin of error. But uh, the non-college educated uh, voters, which is the Republican base, Trump still has, uh, you know, that on stranglehold. And I also think noteworthy in the poll is the Fox News factor. Uh, the Fox News audience, 62 percent uh, support Trump compared to 26 percent. You know, as we know, kind of as Fox go, Fox goes, so goes the Republican Party uh, and primary. So I think at this point, you know, there's been a lot of media, you know, pushing uh, DeSantis less toxic version of Trump. And, you know, maybe uh, maybe Trump's time has passed, but I, I don't see it. I also think if Trump announces he's going to run and reports are it could be earlier, you would assume Twitter uh, and others would would have to, uh, you know, reinstate him. And, and once you have peop, uh, the base hearing from Trump a lot more, uh, you know, potentially every hour on the hour, I think that's just going to stoke uh, more support for Trump. Mm. Well, he might not be on Twitter, but he certainly has uh, the ability to get his messaging out on the, this Twitter alternative app and recently came for <laughs> Elon Musk. Uh, he's one person who probably uh, won't be on the team Trump after Trump called him a BS artist saying, quote, I don't hate the man, but it's time for Trump to hang up and sail into the sunset, adding that he's too old for the presidency. Trump then fired back at Musk, blasting his rocket ships to nowhere and driverless cars that crash, adding that Musk would be worthless without government <laughs> su subsidies. Do we, do we have that uh, whole statement put on the screen? Yeah, it it's pretty, pretty it's incredible delicious. if we have it. I don't know if we have it, but it's, uh, I, I thought it was funny. Um, did you guys see this, uh, D Denise? No, I haven't seen it, but uh, it, it sounds like something that uh, the former president would absolutely, absolutely say. Do you th so <laughs> I don't know who kind of triumphs in, in, the, in the narrative war or whatever if Elon Musk and Donald Trump are fighting. So Elon prefers DeSantis. Elon wants DeSantis. Mm -hmm. I don't think Eli. Oh, there it is. Yeah, the picture. Is the picture really sets it off too, because having him standing there in this kind of weirdly submissive position, they were obviously having some kind of cordial interchange. And for Trump to end this tweet, he ends it. Um, uh, I'll just read the Okay. When Elon Musk came to the White House asking me for help on all of his many subsidized projects, whether it's electric cars that don't drive long enough, driverless cars that crash, or rocket ships to nowhere without which subsidies he'd be worthless, telling me how he was a big <laughs> Trump fan and Republican, I could have said, drop to your knees and beg, and he would have done it. <laughs> Oh, which, you know, it's kind of a fair hit, I guess. It's, it's incredible. Like, few people have been able to best Elon in these Twitter wars. Yeah. But it, it, that was it, a good one. It kind of feels like a Mothra v. <laughs> Godzilla situation where you got to kind of put another bad guy, <laughs> the other bad guy to take each other down. So how do you think voters are going to feel about Musk's sentiment here that the Don should just sail away into the sunset? You know, is, is that a sentiment that's going to be more, more widely held, do you think? I think it's a question that people are wrestling with. So there are a couple things. One, uh, if President 
Trump, former President Trump, should run again. There's this question also about age, right, and what mm. that means, right, where the next, the previous generation is making decisions that, you know, in 10 years, you know, they may not be around to actually see the impact, impact of. But it's also important to note that if I understand the sequence of events properly, Elon took a hit at Donald Trump. And when you hit at Donald Trump, he's going to hit you back and it's going to be absolutely merciless. And I think we all, you know, recognize recognize that about him. And there's absolutely nothing new about that, right? In terms of how in terms of how he uh, how he shows up. And I think part of the reason that people are having this is that it's not that they necessarily disagree with President Trump's policies as much as they think that he is a risk to the Republican Party and down ballot uh, candidates actually mm. actually winning. Uh, you know, and part of this raises a question for me about, of course, January 6th. And I really think people need to ask themselves, and I'm not defending what happened on January 6th in terms of the mayhem and all people defecating in our capital, like that makes no sense to me. However, the idea that 75% of the people who poll were polled said he was just defending his right to protest the election results, but somehow 25% said 20% said that he had got less than 20% said he had gone too far. So how far is too far? And what are the obligations of citizens and elected officials if they perceive and understand that based on data, it is too early to certify an election because it may have been tampered with? And do people think that our elections are infallible and that they can't be tampered with. I think that's the conversation that we should be having as a larger American populace. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, what do you make of that, Jordan? I mean, I think the argument, the argument that people have been making and what's been coming out of the 1-6 hearings is that there wasn't any reasonable, credible um, basis on which Trump to hold that belief and that it was all a lot of pretext. And the fact that he represented that there was reason to want to take more time to certify the election res results or not certify them at all was simply a naked power grab. What do you say? Well, I should just say, going backwards, uh, it's really rich Trump talking about must subsidies since Trump got hundreds of millions of dollars from New York on his real estate properties, all sorts of tax breaks. But I digress. Uh, yeah, I, I agree uh, with my panelists here. I think that, honestly, I don't know how much the Republican base, those hardcore Trumpers, care so much about uh, January 6th. Um, but what I do believe is the only person at this point that could beat Trump is Trump. People are tired of hearing of 2020. I don't think the Republican base is like upset at Trump by and large for what happened, but they're tired of hearing about, you know, oh, he lost this and that. Uh, where Trump's sweet, sweet spot is, is focusing on inflation, uh, saying uh, I left a historic economy, even though that's BS, and look what Biden did to it. Uh, I think he could hit uh, DeSantis on DeSantis. Uh, right now, Disney isn't moving uh, has not moved 2,000 jobs that it was going to move from California to Florida because of DeSantis' uh, attack on Disney down in Florida. So Trump uh, retroactively continuing to insist on this BS election stuff, focusing on the 2020 election rather than uh, a, a laser focus on inflation, gas, food, uh, Biden's, you know, making us a third world country. That, I think, would be Trump's sweet spot. But I think he's too much of a megalomaniac to forget about 2020. Yeah. Right. And Denise, and that's a real liability for Trump if he decides to seek 
the nomination again, that he will be so you know, looking in the rearview mirror, focusing on these past grievances that he just like as a human being is not kind of capable of, of moving beyond. And, e- you know, even if the, the base, a significant, as you said, portion of the base, you know, kind of agrees with him or, or at least doesn't want to publicly disagree with him or doesn't, you know, likes the guy and is supportive of him. They don't I don't think they, they don't want to be re- they know that constantly relitigating all that stuff is not a is not an electorally winning sort of platform mm. to run on. You got to run on on inflation, on 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 what's going on, the suffering that pe- the very real suffering that that people feel. So I don't know if 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 the Republic, I mean, the Republican base is going to put up with it, I guess, if, if Trump well, to decides that, to go for it. They have that, no choice, but that, it is a real liability. To that end, Robbie, according to a political morning consult poll, only 35 percent of respondents want Trump to run, while 61 percent say no to the former president. Meanwhile, Biden actually got even lower marks on the poll, with only 29 percent of respondents saying Biden should run in 2024 and 64 percent saying he should bow out. So is this just all everyone saying we did 2020, we did the the Biden-Trump mashup, we don't want it again? Or is this a substantive critique of one or both of these candidates, Denise? Yeah, I'd be curious to know how the question was framed. Like, is what is there actually the question? Or is it something along the lines of if there were another candidate that could blah, blah, blah? You know how the questions and how they're framed really determines Mm -hmm. it. I think Biden is the person who's making us suffer right now, (laughs) right? And how polar opposite are the two of them from uh, immigration to inflation, as my fellow panelists said, in regard to Trump leaving, you know, these highest uh, black employment and all of the all of the numbers and things. Um, So I think Biden is making us suffer right now. And so the pain that we're feeling kind of drives people's uh, disinterest in him. And I think this January 6th uh, sort of continual pot stirring also makes people uh, turned off a little bit um, by Donald Trump. So I think people are looking for a place to land right now, and it's going to be a really interesting election cycle. What a system that we keep getting served up these uniquely (laughs) unpopular, (laughs) despised political figures in an either or choice among people that lots of Americans don't care for either, very particularly. But uh, Jordan and Denise, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to see you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Critics of New York Governor Kathy Hochul say she is dragging her feet on a promised probe into her former boss, ex-governor Andrew Cuomo. Now, Hochul initially said she would get to the bottom of Cuomo's disastrous pandemic nursing home policy. However, according to the Gotham Gazette, Hochul has yet to appoint any investigators or even seek proposals from outside consultants. Hochul has just been confirmed as the Democratic nominee for governor in November's election, receiving almost 70 percent of her party's votes in the primary. The governor's critics speculate that her slow moves on the Cuomo investigation are linked to the upcoming election. State Assemblyman from New York Ron Kim has been on this story since the early days of the pandemic. He's here with us to discuss these latest developments. Welcome to Rising. Thank you for having me back on. So help remind us exactly what Cuomo needs to be investigated for. I think it has receded into the, the memory banks of a lot of the, the craziness that was 2020. You know, what, what, what should we be focused on right now? Well, in the middle of a pandemic, the former governor chased down a $5.1 million book deal 
as he purposely suppressed life and death toll numbers around nursing homes. Um, for months, lawmakers pushed for the truth and transparency, uh, but he, they kept gaslighting us and the, and the public uh, from getting the truth about how many people died in this facility so we can make better decisions in the middle of the pandemic. Um, but we need a thorough investigation as to why he did this, uh, why he gave uh, near blanket legal immunity to his top donors, why he chose to protect industry profits over saving people's lives in the middle of the pandemic. Mm. And what's the accusation then, um, the link between the alleged link between Hochul dragging her feet on pursuing this investigation and her own upcoming election? I mean, one can surmise that the same people that funded uh, the former governor's campaigns uh, or the same stakeholders who are funding uh, the current governor. Uh, nothing has changed in terms of the power structure in places like Albany. The nursing home syndicate, the hospital, the insurance, the private equity money that comes through Albany, they're the ones that are in control of, of places like the state capital of New York. So the Governor Hochul is still protecting those interests. Uh, when she had promised when she took office to deliver for the families and victims and we're, we're we continue to hold her accountable for those promises and she has said uh yeah there was some reporting that oh we're getting outside investigators consultants etc you know suggested we're putting together this kind of team you know was applauded for doing so that was a while ago but my understanding is nothing of the sort is actually really happening um can you you know talk to us about that. Are, are we missing something? Is there actually an investigation underway? It doesn't seem like it. No, it certainly doesn't seem like it at all. Uh, the state controller validated it just a couple of weeks ago. There has been no communication by the executive, which would have begun some sort of an outside investigation. But that in itself is also a misleading um, path toward getting the transparency. We already consulted outside groups like McKinsey to come in and write audits and reports in 2020, which absolve any Department of Health and any of the state government of any wrongdoings. We want a bipartisan, independent commission with full subpoena power to get to the bottom of why we did this, who made mistakes, and who should be held accountable. This is the only way we can learn from the mistakes so we don't repeat them moving forward and give closure to the thousands of grieving families um, that felt like they lost their loved ones due to bad policies. Yeah, I mean, can you talk about that a little bit more, what the actual human stakes of all of this were? I've, I've been working around with the families um, who lost loved ones in nursing homes, including my own family. Um, I lost my uncle uh, in April of 2020. He was a veteran. He uh, he was the reason why I came to this country. He sponsored my visa when I was a young immigrant coming to this country. And for him to die alone, uh, just like thousands of others, in excruciating pain. And this is just one of the most uh, horrible experiences a person can go through, being isolated, gasping for air, wondering why your loved ones could not come to visit or save you from these facilities. Mm -hmm. The trauma, pain that these families have gone through must be um, accounted for. And one way to do that is to get to the truth. And it, it's not, this isn't politics. It's not, you know, vilifying, you know, one politician or another, but it's just getting to the truth so we don't repeat these mistakes and prioritizing older lives uh, of, from this country. And can you tell us about the legislation um, you have co-sponsored um, to set up a kind of independent investigation? 
I've, I've been working with um, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle to create a true bipartisan uh, committee, a commission to go back and thoroughly investigate um, and, and, and expose what happened uh, with these nursing home facilities. Uh, obviously, if we do this correctly, uh, a very powerful individuals and groups will be implicated in talking about uh, people with billions of dollars in the healthcare, uh, you know, industry to all the way to po potentially labor union groups um, that have known about the bad policies but signed off on them. And there, and that's one of the part, part of the reason why there's been a an, an institutional effort to slow walk this or just not do it at all because there's just too many people um, that may be caught up on these mistakes and there could be a reckoning in places like Albany which may impact for the rest of the country. And quite frankly, we need this type of reckoning because we've been failing uh, at, at long-term care policies for years when we've known that we have a crisis in front of us and we haven't been able to take care of people who should be living with dignity and retiring with, safely in their homes, but we've been neglecting them for decades. But now is the time there's ever to have a reckoning in our healthcare to get this right moving forward. Right, there's some speculation that uh, there were similar policies perhaps in other in other states, I, I'm from I'm from Michigan. I, I know uh, we've had we featured reporters on the show who have looked into and discussed that maybe to to some extent there were similar nursing home policies going on under the Whitmer administration, and that you know raises the question of do powerful uh, interests want to not have an investigation because it's no longer just about Cuomo? You know, he's old news. If they could throw the book at him, whatever, you know, sacrifice him, but nobody in power wants to open it up to this broader question of, well, are there other governors complicit? Are there other forces complicit? And, and that's why we really need an investigation, right? That's right. And I think every governor made different, slightly different decisions. Um, but one universal decision they made was sending uh, unprepared uh, uh, COVID positive patients to unprepared long-term facilities when they could not take care of them. Uh, many executives made this decision and mandated it. What this governor in New York did was take a step further and monetize the moment. And he, tried, he was chasing mm -hmm. down a multi-million dollar book deal as he made these bad decisions and suppressing the truth from the public. Uh, that's why it's even more draconian in New York State. Yes. But as other governors made the same mistake, policy errors, we should be honest about the mistakes that we made. And I, don't, and I think the more transparent honesty we are, the more forgiving the people will be. But we almost lost that window of being truthful. Now we've covered up the truth for years and we're doubling down on the lies and people are less forgiving. But I still believe if you're just coming forward and, and, and be accountable to the mistakes, the American public will, will be, for, I think, I believe will be forgiving as long as there's accountability. Well, thank you, Ron, for staying on this story and for joining us today. Thank you so much for your time. We will have more rising for you after this. NASA's James Webb Space Telescope released stunning images of outer space this week. Webb is said to be the successor to the Hubble Telescope and is supposed to give a deeper glimpse into our universe. Here to talk about this groundbreaking technology is Dr. Avi Loeb, professor of science at Harvard and the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation. Dr. Loeb, welcome. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, we're so glad to have you with us. Uh, I think we were all in awe of the images uh, we were seeing uh, yesterday. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the technology that makes this possible. Um, well, the James Webb Space Telescope is unique. Uh, first, in terms of its size, it's six and a half meters in diameter, about uh, seven times uh, in area than the Hubble Space Telescope that gave us a previous glimpse at the universe. And uh, it, it's also sensitive in the infrared. Uh, and um, if you imagine stars in the very early universe uh, emitting light in the optical visible band or the ultraviolet, that light will be stretched by the cosmic expansion so that it will appear in the infrared for us now. And so uh, this telescope is giving us sensitivity that is unprecedented to look at the very first stars and galaxies in the universe, uh, sort of the scientific uh, genesis of the light, uh, let there be light. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, uh, moreover, it allows us to uh, look for signs of life on other planets, and we can talk about that. Yeah, in fact, uh, one Twitter user uh, said of the telescope, uh, the James Webb Telescope can scan for chemical composition and atmospheres of exoplanets. This is the first one ever done, and it shows atmospheric water vapor. Prepare uh, for alien life reveal on other worlds soon. Is that something we should be think thinking about, little green men, or, or something perhaps less dramatic? Not really on this planet. This is uh, a, a, what is called the gas giants. It's, it's half the mass of Jupiter, so it's made mostly of gas, whereas life as we know it is possible on a planet that, is, that has a rocky surface like the Earth with a thin atmosphere on top of it. Definitely not this planet, but we can tell that this planet has water on it, which is remarkable. Uh, of course, water is a necessary ingredient for life as we know it, but we also need uh, a solid surface with uh, a thin uh, atmosphere. So there will be other planets that uh, perhaps will have that. And uh, for example, there is the Trappist uh, system of planets that uh, the web will look at. And uh, we look forward to seeing the composition of the atmospheres of some of those rocky planets. Um, and beyond that, there is obviously interest in uh, searching for um, how planets form and uh, uh, searching for fragments uh, that arrive to the solar system from other planetary systems. And can you talk about how it is that because of the nature of what we're doing, you know, we're peering across such a, a vast distance, we're, we're actually sort of seeing a snapshot in, in time, right, in, in the past because of it being, you know, the, the time it would take that those that you know light to reach us I'm, I'm butchering the actual science of it but can you an expert speak to that right so um we know that uh, the universe is expanding so if we go back in time there was a time when the density of the universe was infinite that's called the big bang and uh, we don't know what happened before the big bang how the Big Bang emerged. But we can look at the universe after the Big Bang. And if we look at great distances, it takes light a long time to reach us from those distances. And therefore, we see how the universe looked like at early times. It's sort of like a time machine. But in fact, we're just looking far away. And we see what happened early on far away, which is remarkable. So we can get an image of how the universe looked like. The first image we have is of the so-called cosmic radiation background, cosmic microwave background, 400,000 years after the Big Bang. That's a very short time. Back then, there were no galaxies, no stars. 
And after that, there was a period of that we call the Dark Ages, the Cosmic Dark Ages, that were followed by a cosmic dawn when the first stars formed in the universe and um, sort of lit up uh, like lights on a Christmas tree. And uh, we can look at those. And the web allows us the first glimpse at those early times when the first stars and galaxies formed. Uh, I started working on this subject about three decades ago. Back then, there were only a handful of people interested in it. Uh, and um, I was on the first uh, advisory committee that designed the James Webb Space Telescope for that purpose. Uh, it was uh, designed to be a telescope sensitive in the infrared so we can see at light that is arriving to us from far away. The first galaxies were very small. They were uh, sort of like Lego pieces that came together to make a galaxy like our own Milky Way galaxy today. And so they are very challenging to detect because they were faint, intrinsically faint, but also when we look at them, we are looking far away. So we have this uh, telescope, the web telescope made of um, uh, a lot of segments, 18 segments of beryllium cult, uh, coated with gold that uh, was placed uh, a million miles away from Earth. Uh, and it, it is being uh, shielded from sunlight so that it's very cold and can look deep into space without any background from the atmosphere of the Earth or the sun. And uh, um, it cost us $10 billion, this telescope, but nature is very kind to us. It provides us with natural lenses. Uh, we call them gravitational lenses. Uh, when you have a cluster of galaxies, a collection of a thousand galaxies like the Milky Way together, uh, they can uh, focus the light from behind. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the uh, exceptional sensitivity of the James Webb Space Telescope is aided by a natural telescope, and we can go even deeper. That's the image that was shown in the White House. So but the telescope... The telescope yeah. is, is, is uh, you said, how far away? How long did it take to, to get it into position? Right. So uh, we're looking at an image of the universe that, uh, from 13 uh, billion years ago. Uh, the age of the universe, the Big Bang, took place 13.8. So the universe was an infant back then and mm -hmm. uh, just about uh, 800 uh, million years uh, we think that the first stars, the first galaxies, started forming around 100 million years, so we still have a way to go. It's like an archaeological dig. The deeper we go, the more ancient are the layers that we uncover. Hmm. And you said earlier that you know you're, the, the, that particular planet wasn't likely to yield any evidence of life because it didn't have a rocky surface. But there's also this phrasing of life as we know it, life as we know it. It always strikes me as curious, I gotta say, as a Star Trek fan, to think that we, we, we do conceptualize of human life as this kind of, uh, or life as, you know, in these very human Earth-centric terms. Is there not the possibility, is there any interrogation into what it would look like for life to develop on a gas giant or to be kind of uh, very different in form? Uh, non-corporeal life, uh, different kinds of expressions of life. Is there a way to even think about and identify and try to search for those kinds of things as we get greater and greater capacity to look deeper and deeper into the universe? That's an excellent uh, question. And uh, one thing I learned by being a scientist is that we should be modest. Uh, I call it cosmic modesty because nature is more imaginative than we are. And it's quite possible that there are forms of life very different than we find here on Earth. Uh, for example, uh, most of the objects 
uh, that are rocky are actually far away from a host star and they are completely frozen. But underneath the layer of ice on their surface, there could be an ocean. And the question is, is there life in that ocean? Are there fish? And there are some satellites uh, uh, of or moons of uh, planets in the solar system, like uh, Enceladus or Europa, that uh, are thought to potentially have life under the icy surface. It will be difficult for us to drill that surface, but we can see plumes of gas coming out, the uh, geysers, and we can search whether there are any in indications for life underneath the ice. Mm. Uh, but also in the gas uh, giants, uh, it's possible that there are different forms of life than we are used to. And uh, there was discussions about phosphine on Venus, that perhaps in the clouds of Venus, uh, there are droplets of water that carry life in them. Very different from what we see on Earth, because the surface of Venus is uh, too hot to maintain liquid water. And, you know, the, the sky is the limit in that sense. There could be many other... Uh, roots towards life that we don't even imagine at the moment. I very much hope that, uh, you know, seeing what happens in world politics, that that there is intelligence higher than ours. <laughs> <out there>. So <laughs> anyone frustrated by what happens in D.C. Uh, may uh, just just stay tuned because we might learn something from a smarter kid on our cosmic block. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Professor, for shedding some uh, light on these wondrous images and describing them in such literary quality. So we appreciate it. My pleasure. We'll have more Rising right after this. Hey Kim, what's on your radar? Well, New York City Emergency Management unveiled a PSA this past Monday on what to do after a nuclear attack. Watch this. So there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why, just know that the big one has hit, okay? So what do we do? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. Step one, get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. And no, staying in the car is not an option. You need to get into a building and move away from the windows. Step two. Stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement? Head there. If you don't have one, get as far into the middle of the building as possible. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. Step three, stay tuned. Follow media for more information. Don't forget to sign up for Notify NYC for official alerts and updates. And don't go outside until officials say it's safe. All right, you've got this. Okay, well, this is frightening. It's frightening that New York City thinks we're at the point where they need to spend government money on a PSA telling people what to do in the event of a nuclear attack. Now, that being said, this is good information for what to do after an attack has happened. The mantra, get inside, stay inside, stay tuned, is a good one to remember. That's if you're lucky enough to not be incinerated by the explosive blast or crushed by the shockwaves. 
So if you do survive, you need to worry about radioactive fallout. And that's why you need to get inside as quickly as possible. But this PSA doesn't tell you a few pretty important things you need to know, like how long are you expected to stay inside sheltering in the basement? The answer could be a month. At minimum, you'll be down there for 24 to 48 hours, but mostly likely longer than that. On top of this, they don't tell you how are you supposed to tune in to any radio or media when you're in a basement with very little reception, and that's if cell towers survived. And where are you supposed to go to the bathroom? And what are you supposed to eat? And how are you supposed to rinse off the debris if you're sheltering like in a crawl space or something? So FEMA recommends you prepare yourself in advance by doing a few things in addition to what this video has to say. So I have the single most important thing that you should do that FEMA, neither FEMA nor New York City government tells you, and I will get to that. But let's look at what FEMA says just in case, okay? First of all, you're going to need some water, a gallon of water per person per day for at least three days. You're going to need this for drinking and for sanitation. That's how you're going to wash yourself off. If you get yourself into, you know, you need to clean yourself off. That's the way you're going to take a shower, potentially. You're going to need some food, at least a three-day supply of non-perishable food. So you're going to need battery or hand crank radio, and that's actually how you're going to find out about how long you need to be staying in your basement or crawl space or wherever it is you are in the center of your building. Um, you definitely want to be in a concrete building. Try to stay, you know, if your house is made out of wood, try to be in a commercial building that has concrete or get to your basement or crawl space or something of that sort. But that's how you're going to hear about updates. You need a hand crank radio or battery operated, but it's better to get a hand crank. You need battery operated flashlights and some extra batteries. You need a first aid kit. You need a whistle to signal for help in case you're underneath a bunch of debris. You need a dust mask, maybe an N95 to help filter contaminated air, uh, which so don't, I know you want to throw away all your masks. I know most of us want to get rid of them, but don't get rid of them just yet because you might need them in case of a nuclear attack. So keep those N95s around in your emergency kit. You'll need some plastic sheeting and some duct tape potentially to help keep things you know, keep the wind out of the place and to keep yourself protected. You're going to need some moist towelettes, garbage bags, and plastic ties. That's how you're going to go to the bathroom. That's for your personal sanitation. You're going to need a wrench or pliers to turn off utilities, a can opener for food if your kit needs it. You're going to need some local maps because you probably won't be able to access them on your phone. Um, if you can, try to add to your kit. So those are the things you need. But if you can, try to add to your kit things like prescription medications and glasses, infant formula and diapers if you need, uh, pet formula, or I mean pet food and extra water for your pet. You probably also should gather your important family documents like copies of insurance policies, identification, bank account records in a waterproof portable container. Also, you'll want some cash or traveler's checks and some change. You want maybe some sleeping bags and blankets and pillows, a uh, complete change of clothing. There's a lot of things you have to assemble, but just in case you need um, you're going to need some, you know, long sleeve clothes. That's what you'd want if you're dealing with this type of thing. Don't get the short, skimpy stuff. You need the long sleeve clothes because you want to stay protected from radioactive fallout. Um, you'll also want some bleach. You want a medicine dropper, a fire extinguisher, matches, uh, personal hygiene items, and paper and pencil so that maybe you can leave a note somewhere saying, we're down here. Now, these are the important items to assemble in this emergency kit. And really, they're for any type of emergency. So it's smart to assemble this and have them located already where you think you would go. But there's one thing, the most important thing we should do to prepare in advance of a nuclear attack. And that is 
demand Washington stop provoking war with Russia. This seems to be the easiest thing we could do in advance of a nuclear attack is to not have one in the first place. The fact that the New York City government thinks they need to spend time and money on a PSA to train people on what to do during a nuclear attack should be a wake-up call to all of our politicians, but mostly to we the people who should stop and say, wait a minute, did we sign up for this? Are we really willing to be nuked for Ukraine? Because apparently our government leaders think it's a possibility. And despite the risk, they aren't backing down. Instead, they're preparing us for the worst. And honestly, I think we should prepare for the worst, which is why I've given you much of this information on what you need in your emergency kit. Because quite frankly, I have no faith in our government leaders to stop escalating and provoking wars, particularly with Russia. So I don't know. Grim, I Kim. Mean, <laughs> Hey, I'm not the one that did it. New York City did yeah. it. They're the ones who came out with this PSA to begin with. And that should make us all stop and question a little bit. Like, they really think this is a possibility. I mean, it's crazy, but this is where we're at. Remember the guidance from the Cold War that was like, oh, get under your desk. Like, that was what they mm -hmm. told everybody to do. Um, yeah, which I don't think that. that was particularly oh, no, that was useful. <laughs> well, look, 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 this <laughs> is a <reminder. laughs> Okay. No, I, well, didn't they say that for nuclear fallout? Like, get under I'm not bad at Robbie. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it did remind me a little bit of, remember those threat levels that they promulgated under Bush 2, uh, where it was like, what color is it today on the terrorist threat level? Yellow, yeah. green, orange, you know, all of that right. stuff. And there was some, you know, liberal commentary at the time that said that this is not really you know, uh, well calculated to assess threat. What it is is that the government can kind of turn up the threat levels and get people afraid and more likely to want to, you know, accept various authoritarian policies, restrictions on speech, the kinds of things that we saw in the post, you know, 9-11 years because they were being told constantly something really, really, really bad is going to happen. And I wonder how much of this is, you know, sincerely a signal of the political landscape that we're in right now and how much of this is a tool employed often by people in power with, because they know that the more folks are afraid, the more that they will right. tolerate. I, I, and I, I had that same thought when I saw this thinking, oh, they are just really trying to get us riled up. But then I don't know. I mean, we're in an era right now where anything goes. It seems like I think, oh, no, that's too crazy. That'll never happen. And then sure enough, it happens. So it does make me a bit nervous that they are putting these PSAs out there now and saying, hey, you've got this. By the way, you've got this, she says at the end. Right, so I just you looked it up. It's the duck and cover campaign, which was <laughs> the standard response to potential nuclear attacks throughout the 50s and 60s, where they told, yes, kids in, in school to duck and cover under their desks if they're in school or against a wall with your head and face protected if you are outdoors. Well, it's Which funny because is... my dad grew up during that era, right? He's a, a boomer. And and uh, I was telling him yesterday about this PSA. I said, yeah, New York came out with this PSA telling us what to do in a, nucle in a nuclear attack. And he goes, oh, I already know. You get underneath your desk. <laughs> that was what he... There you go. Because <laughs> that's what he was told over and over. I mean, Are you going to invite War us era. to hang out in your fallout shelter, Kim? No, get your own. You guys need to get <laughs> your own. How are we going to produce together. the show? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to have like the satellite and all that on my end. So you guys need to be getting your stuff together on your end. Okay, well, we can <laughs> get under this, this table. This table is pretty big. We and could, this, uh... this is an interior space. But the, what's so funny to me about that is this presumption that people living in New York City have all of these options for where to go. Yeah. She's standing in like this amazing like million dollar loft that also right. nobody lives in. And it's like, go to your basement. Who has, 
I mean, maybe if you live in a walk-up, there's a basement. My, my walk-up in New York didn't have access to the basement. The idea that there's an interior room at all, LOL, it was a studio. Right, <laughs> like, right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Well, and that, and that just kind of goes to the, you know, it's like what we saw after Hurricane Katrina, for example, where it's the poor people who right. end up damaged and hurt the most. That's who would be, you know, in a nuclear attack like this, only the rich will survive. I mean, that's just the reality of it. They're the ones that even right now, some of them might be building bomb shelters for all we know. There might actually be a spike. I'd have to look it up. But there's, I know that there's a spike in purchasing um, like potassium iodide, mm. which is supposed to help like right, radiation. protect you, take the pills, right? Although experts say, you know, that's it's just mm. like that. It's not enough. Like, you you know, the, the radio, it's just going to be way too like some pills aren't going to save you from that. But I'm sure that there are a lot of people that are building up these types of things. I mean, I certainly think everybody should have an emergency kit, no matter the disaster. You mm -hmm. need it for earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, anything. And it would also be handy in a nuclear, I guess, attack. Um, so I'm a big proponent of getting yourself your emergency kits, getting yourself supplies of food, do all of that as best as you can. But again, Brianna, like you mentioned, where do you store that if you're poor and you have a small, tiny place? Where, you know, we're we're going to lock that do do? door. We're going we're gonna to ration the remaining coffee, and uh, you, you and I can finally have our, our long debate on, on wokeness as uh, the world grows. <laughs> oh, God, month, I'm going to need more incentive not to provoke Russia. Don't let that happen. <laughs> Save me. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye, everybody.